We'll be walking through the last two chapters of that book, chapters 3 and 4. But first, I want to commend you. The singing was very full this morning, and that's so encouraging to be able to be in the midst of a congregation and uh, be kind of lifted up no matter where we've come from. There is the surety of uh, the gospel going forth uh, through song. And so, thank you. It was very encouraging. We're going to turn to Jonah for a few moments together. Pastor Dave kicked us off last week with the first half, so we're going to look at the second half. And this is a great book. It's a great story. I'm sure the the children are like, yeah, Jonah. We like Jonah. We can get our heads around Jonah. And uh, we like it too because in a lot of ways it really is our story as well. The life and the ministry of Jonah show us this. It, It says that God will accomplish his mission in spite of our failures Regardless of our faithfulness, God will accomplish his purposes. See, Jonah is Israel's story, the story of Israel's rebellion and their occasional faithfulness. It's a story of God's mercy in the midst of all of that. And we resonate with that story as we pursue faithfulness to God, trusting him to accomplish all of his mission despite, in spite of our faults and our failures. So we're going to look at Jonah for a bit, but before we do that, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And now, as we enter into this time of reading, of preaching, of hearing, receiving, would you conform us more into the image of your dear Son through the work of your Spirit, that our lives might bring glory to you and life to a watching world. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we all throughout life want second chances. Some of us need a second act almost. And we come to that point in Jonah. He gets a second chance here. This is act two. God's prophet enters God's mission to save God's enemy. That's how chapter one started but didn't finish that way. And now we have, this is Jonah getting his second chance. So act one of Jonah, if we remember that story where God called Jonah to preach to the worst of Israel's enemies. Those barbaric and cruel Assyrians calling Jonah to Nineveh. Pastor Dave talked about it a little bit last week, what the equivalent might look like a few decades ago with George Bush would have been desiring life for those in Baghdad. Pray for those in Baghdad would have been the mantra. What about President Zelensky begging salvation for Moscow and the Russian people? That's what Jonah was called to be and to do. So, of course, he goes towards Tarshish. He rejects God's mission. God raises up a storm. Jonah sleeps in the belly of the ship while the sailors fear the God who created this storm. Jonah is cast into the chaos and to certain death. Yet he's saved by a huge fish. The sailors on board the ship in the calm of the storm bend knee in worship and pray to the living God. Jonah in the tomb in the depths of despair. He prays to God. God hears him, delivers him. Scene change. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is the second call to mission. And this is what resurrection life looks like. 
Like um, God commands his prophet to rise up. You'll see that throughout our text. Rise up, Jonah. So Jonah rises. How will Jonah serve this side of resurrection life? He has found shelter in the shade of God's mercy. Now how will he live? Verse 3 of chapter 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What is it, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Is that the title of the book? (laughs) Is that? um, So this section here is really a mirror image of chapter 1. It's like a photo negative. We have Jonah with the same call, the same word from God, and Jonah this time obeys. And he goes not away from Nineveh, but he goes to Nineveh. It's something to discuss over lunch or sometime today with those around you here. It's like, just look at chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4, and and look at how did these mirror one another? How was this a retelling of the first part? We could go into a lot there, but I'll leave that to you. Nineveh is huge. Three days walk from the interstate to their Glenwood Corners. That's a big city. Having risen from the dead, Jonah obeys God And the command from chapter 1 was call out against that great city, for their evil has come before me. Call out against that great city, for their evil has come up before me. So he begins preaching through the city, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The prophet preacher is called to speak God's word with conviction, announcing good news which always begins with the bad. The preacher, the missionary, the Christian speaking with their neighbor, he enters the city, the pulpit, the neighborhood, knowing that he has massively failed even this past week. He surely disappointed God just this week en route to Tarshish. And yet, we followers of Jesus are called to be heralds of hope, and we break the ice with a message of doom and impending destruction for those who refuse the almighty God. See, no eloquence or charisma, no rhetoric can change the heart of man. It is ever and always the work of God's spirit to convict, to convert. So the sharer of the gospel of Jesus Christ is fully aware of our insufficiencies, our inabilities. As we ascend the gates of Nineveh, as we descend into the belly of the beast, declaring God's justice and impending wrath, Jonah calls out to the people of Nineveh. He calls out to us, repent. So the hearer of God's word must assume a posture of humility, of lack, of need, which is so common in our society today. The Spirit must work here as well, for none can turn save uh, uh, t- to turn to God save our eyes being opened, our ears being unstopped, our hearts being softened to respond. This is a divine mercy. Jonah's ministry is to go into Nineveh and he cry out to the people, "Hide yourselves under the shade of God's mercy." God's word does not return void but will water the earth and bear fruit in its time. God will accomplish his purpose. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They turned to God. There is repentance here, and that's a type of 
death, a type of dying. Scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. Jesus teaches, I am the resurrection and the life. See, these would have been pagans here, right? Pagan religions, they know a lot about the cycle of life and death throughout all of creation. And pagan religions tend to imitate this, this religious life. From a death-like sorrow before their gods, that's what the Ninevites are doing. They're putting ashes on themselves to imitate their eventual return to dust. They withhold good things from themselves, putting themselves in the place of those who are wholly dependent and ever dying. Humanity has always inhabited the rhythms of death, of life, looking to the gods to raise them to life. The Ninevites are doing just that. That's these rhythms of repentance here. They look to the God of Jonah now, though. That's the difference. That's the change. What Jonah said, they heard and they heeded. Jonah's giving them life, hiding themselves under the shadow, under the shade of God's mercy. It's a response that echoes. Remember the sailors on the boat? Jonah's down there sleeping in the belly of the boat. And they're praying, the sailors are praying to their gods, and they call out to Jonah, hey, Who's responsible for this? They, they find out it's Jonah. And so they, they, but they cry out to his God and ask for mercy. After they cast Jonah into the sea, they cry out for forgiveness for this. And they cry out for mercy even more. They knew very little of who Jonah's God is. But he is mighty indeed, worthy of praise, who can control the wind and the waves. Surely Assyria itself, Nineveh, will be vulnerable at times. And soon after they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, they too will fall. But what a response from one measly prophet, a rebellious prophet, from the least to the greatest in Nineveh, they worship God. Chapter 3, verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He tells his people to turn from their evil, so that verse 9, who knows? God may relent, may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. As the head goes, so goes the body. We have a king who vacates his throne so that the king of kings can ascend it. Naked he came into the world and naked he plans to leave it. He then clothes himself with dust as he enters the state of death. These actions are, not, are rooted in the hope of mercy, not of merit. He says, God may turn and relent. God may turn from his, his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, if God's people would turn from their sin, then God would turn from his wrath. As Jonah preaches in the streets of Nineveh, God has been calling Israel for generations to repentance, to turn and turn to him. All throughout the reign of Jeroboam, as Jonah goes to Nineveh, the people of Israel refused. Jonah has refused. The Ninevites, however, will they repent? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will accomplish his purposes. What God is this who would send his prophet's son to save his enemies? The salvation of an entire people at the preaching of one sermon. I mean, what preacher, what prophet wouldn't jump for joy at this great success? Chapter 4, verse 1. But 
it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is why we like Jonah. This is why we like, look at this honesty here. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. God relents from the disaster that he promised, and Jonah says, I knew it, Lord. I knew you would forgive these wretched murderers and evil barbarians. I knew it. Jonah even goes as far to quote God's words back to him from when God revealed himself to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. You're gracious, Lord. You're merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and it makes me mad. How could you treat our enemies like that? So refreshing to have such an honest response, isn't it? The text reads literally that Jonah thought this was, that this mercy of God was an evil. There's, for generations, Israel had rejected God's mission for them. They were to be a light to the nations, to bless the nations with all of the gifts that God had given them. They were to then share those with the nations, and yet they, they turned inward. They, they hoarded his goodness, his grace, his mercy and love. Jonah rejected the mission once, and now a second chance. He has fulfilled the task, and in the fulfillment, under the shade of God's mercy, he lashes out at God for his mercy upon the enemies who would soon conquer Israel. And Jonah goes down. Down he goes. The prophet goes down into the depths. He sank down into the sea of despair, verse 3 of chapter 4. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, before we cast Jonah into the sea of our disgust and disappointment can we at least feel a little bit of his despair understand a little bit of what he has just done is to help save the very people who have been harassing jonah's people the very people who will soon conquer jonah's people and take them from their homes and their land not only that but his actions are fulfilling god's promise that israel should they fail in their mission to be god's light that God would then go himself to the nations and Israel would sit in judgment. Jonah's greatest work as a prophet seals the doom of his people. That palpable darkness that longs for the comfort of death. Jonah enters a tomb of his own devising, not a tomb which God had provided. Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? The Lord asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, there's no text in response to that, but you know what he says, right? Yeah, yeah, I do very well to be angry. Notice how anger runs throughout this passage. God was angry at Nineveh, and he relents of his anger. Jonah is angry, but he does not relent of his so God asks a diagnostic question, a moment of self-reflection, a soul-searching query. Do you do well to be angry? While we don't take lightly this second time that Jonah experiences the waves and the billows washing over him, there's weeds wrapped around his head once again, we do see a bit of failure on his part in this way. See, earlier in the first two chapters, when he was in despair in the fish's belly in that aquatic tomb, Jonah remembered the Lord. That's what the, the prayer tells us, that he remembered the Lord as he prayed to the Lord. But here, Jonah's prayer, or his anger prayer, seems to blind him to the Lord. 
Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Don't you love it? Can you picture it? God's relented of his wrath and so Jonah's anger, but I'm going to go out east of the city and, and just maybe... Sodom and Gomorrah will happen once again, maybe. To move east, as Scripture tells stories, when you see somebody moving to the east, there should be a little bit of caution in our minds because to move to the east is it's not a good sign. It echoes man's exile from the garden. That man is ever east of Eden. And so when you have Jonah moving to the east, we begin to be wary for him. It's like the exile from the garden. It's like enemies of Assyria and Babylon and Syria. They all come from the east like a hot wind. God has mercy upon Jonah in the sheltering wilderness. He's following in the footsteps of his forebears who wandered in the wilderness. They made booths for themselves, and Jonah was trying to hide under the protection of those booths. But God provides a plant, and that a plant would provide shade. Jonah was, it says, exceedingly glad. What's interesting here is that the word for discomfort here is the same word for evil. It's the same word for evil that's used throughout the text. And, and so what you have is, is you have Jonah's situation outside of the city under the burning sun and the hot east wind as an evil in the same way of Nineveh's actions throughout their kingdom's reign. As the evil of Nineveh comes before God, he has mercy upon that wicked people. Now that Jonah's wickedness comes up before the Lord, how will the Lord respond? But what does he do? He invites Jonah, hide under the shade of my mercy. God provides the shade of mercy for Jonah's evil, his anger, his rejection of God and his way. And how will Jonah respond? Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked for, that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry with the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is the third time in Jonah's story that he is at the mouth of the grave. It's the second time in this chapter where Jonah seeks a tomb of his own devising. He is angry at God at his circumstances. His how long, O Lord, rages at God, at, at God's what? And so here's the irony of the passage, isn't it? What is he raging at God for? The irony is that, what? He is raging at God for his mercy upon the enemies of God. While what has God been doing the whole time here but providing mercy for Jonah? He is angry because God then takes away or withholds the mercy that he has shown to Jonah. And he rages on, and understandably so. And God is saying, do you do well? He's asking, is this that you want mercy for yourself but to withhold mercy from others? And this is Israel's problem throughout their history. 
to receive the good gifts of God, but to hoard them, to hold them, to withhold them from others. This gets at the heart of Israel's greed, their neglect, their failure. The plant is a parable for Jonah and for Israel. And its punch comes in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which, uh, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The way that unfolds, you see that the, the, the parable here is that, that Nineveh or Assyria, that's the plant that God will raise up. And why would he raise them up? So that when they exile, when Assyria comes and exiles Israel, Assyria will be a shade of God's mercy for God's people. Israel refused to light the way for the nations to come to God, so God is going to throw them into the teeth of the nations, into the raging sea of the Gentiles, into the belly of the fish. But from that tomb, they will be protected. They will be shaded in God's mercy. So that Israel, that Jonah, would be able to rise now as God's light once again, as God's word of life, to bless the nations in exile, Assyria and Babylon and Persia would be the nations that would be the shade of God's mercy to protect and provide for the needs of God's people. God says, you pity the plant that was the shade of my mercy. Should I not provide the shade of my mercy to those who despise me? Should I not raise up a people from their nations, saving them from that scorching east wind, that rebellious priesthood that taints your kingdom, of the false prophets that speak a false word in your world, of those wicked kings ruling in wickedness. Generations of Israelites, they reject the mercies that God has given. And so God will have pity upon the nations. He will shade Assyria in his mercy that they would shade Israel in exile. God will accomplish his mission. Could Israel have seen it unfolding like this? Could Jonah have seen it unfolding like this? But this is exactly what God has always said he will do, and he will do it. God will accomplish his purposes. Jonah, he had the Psalms right at his lips, didn't he? If only he could sing, you know, the Lord is your shade. At your right hand. See, throughout rebellion of wicked kings in Israel, throughout exile in Assyria and Babylon and Persia, God's people hear Jonah's story and it becomes their own story. Did you notice how this story ends? Remember these last very impactful, very passionate words? And also much cattle. It's strange, isn't it? You remember how the, the parable of the prodigal son ends? Right? The party's going on on the inside. Father's been talking to the older son. And the parable ends with the older son standing at the front door. And the readers left standing there with him, asking themselves, Will I enter or not? We're left here with Jonah. 120,000 enemies and much cattle. And we're being asked, will you enter in or will you not? Will you heed God's word and his invitation? 
to be a light to the nations. See, we inhabit Jonah's story in the way that Israel was to inhabit it as well. How will we respond to God? The God who calls us to join him on mission, that mission to be a shade of mercy, that shade of mercy to a world raging in anger and ravished by evil. The book leaves us, doesn't it? It leaves us longing for something better than Jonah, for a new Jonah, a, a better Jonah, a true and final Jonah, and also for a shade, like a shade tree that will never die, that no worm can touch. See, Jesus promised those rejecting him that the only sign that they would see is the sign of Jonah, that God's prophet would once again enter the belly of the fish for three days, that he would be that sign, he would be that Jonah, that he too would descend east of the city, and he would stand willingly before the tomb, that his plant, his tree would provide no shade. There would be no mercy. On that tree, on that cross, there would be only wrath and only death. See, he too cried out in agony and despair as the weeds entangled, the weeds of sin entangled his head. The, 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 the scorching heat of God's wrath beat down on him. No shade, no mercy was given this Jonah, who was our Jesus Christ, in order that we who were enemies in our sin might be shown God's mercy. And as the belly of the fish gave up God's prophet at his command, so the tomb could not contain he who is the resurrection and the life. We are this story, and he is our Jonah. Baptized, fed at his table, nourished in the shade of Christ's body, what mercy do we receive? We, would we then? I mean, could we then withhold this mercy from others? Will we still our tongues while neighbors rage in anger against their God, our God? Will we be silent before those who don't see, who don't hear, who don't know their right hand from their left? We are, like Jonah, called by the true and greater Jonah, raised up as God's shade tree of mercy. So our task is really quite simple and really quite glorious. We're not called to defeat God's enemies. He will do that. We're not called to be without fault, for he alone is without fault. We are not called to be always right or to win the day. We are called simply as heralds of good news, pointers to Jesus Christ, calling out to a world raging in anger and ravished by, by evil. Look to Jesus. Hide yourselves under the shade of his mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us Jesus Christ and that we can hide under the shade of your mercy. Though we take it for granted, though we don't always see it, we trust, Lord, that you are accomplishing your purposes in our lives, through our community, and throughout the world. So I pray that you would raise up in our midst, from this body, those who would be faithful to you, who would share your gospel with one another and with a watching world. Grant us much fruit, O Lord, that your kingdom might be established here and throughout the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Enter now into time for our offering. Uh, instructions to give online are up there. Otherwise, our ushers will proceed forward at this time.
Would you please rise now and we'll sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us yourself through your dear Son. And now we give ourselves to you through these tithes and offerings that our lives might be used for the furtherance of your kingdom in our midst and throughout the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.